Father in heaven, thank you for the Sabbath day, and I pray that you would send your spirit to be with us. I pray that you would send your spirit to speak through me and that the words spoken would be yours, not mine, and bless us throughout the rest of the Sabbath day. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. So my message title today is Elisha, the prophet of peace. So we're going to be talking about the prophet Elisha, who we know followed Elijah, the prophet, back in the Old Testament time. And one of the reasons I wanted to take a look at Elisha was because of what kind of a work he represented in the time that he lived. Now, I want us to look first at Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And this isn't speaking of Elisha, it's actually speaking of Elijah. And here in Malachi chapter 4, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This is speaking of Elijah symbolically speaking, coming before the second coming of Christ. Elijah, when he was here on this earth, had a special ministry filled with great power. And Elisha followed him with a double portion of the Holy Spirit. So surely if the Lord is going to send someone like Elijah or a group of people like Elijah just before he comes the second time, and Elisha had a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. There must be some characteristics about Elisha that we should be looking for in our own lives as we prepare to meet Jesus the second time. So I want us to look at some of those characteristics of Elisha. And let's start in 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, we have the familiar story of Elijah fleeing out into the wilderness, thinking that he's all by himself. After the victorious experience on Carmel, he fled for his life. And at the end of his experience, as he's coming back towards God, God tells him, there's 7,000 people in Israel who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And among that 7,000 were the family of Elisha. And so God tells Elijah to go anoint Elisha to be a prophet after him. You can see that in verse 16. But starting in verse 19, speaking of Elisha, it says, So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth. And Elisha passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. Of course, this is a very symbolic and significant event. Elijah is signifying that his work as a prophet will be passed on to Elisha, that the work of Elijah will be carried on. And Elisha left the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And Elijah said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? So the very first thing that happens to Elisha when it becomes known to him that God is choosing him to follow after Elijah. God tests him through Elijah by saying, 
you know, you don't really have to do this. If you want to stay with your family, that's okay. And Elisha, if you study um, the history of the family he came from, actually came from a very wealthy family. So what he was leaving wasn't just an ordinary family life. His family was one of the wealthy families in Israel that God had blessed greatly because of their faithfulness to him. And so when God asked him to leave his family to follow Elisha, he was making, from a worldly standpoint, a great sacrifice to leave all the worldly goods and possessions that he had. And sometimes, in our experience today, God asks us, to leave things behind when he calls us to move forward. Maybe he calls us to leave the home we've grown up in with a wealthy family, perhaps. Maybe some of us haven't come from wealthy families, but some of us perhaps have. And God may be calling us to a life of sacrifice, to a life that doesn't have all the worldly goods that maybe we've been used to in our growing up life. And this is what happened to Elisha. But notice how he responded. So in verse 21, he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elisha and ministered unto him. So Elisha made a decided choice that he would follow God, even though he was given the option to stay with his family if he wanted to. And I'm very thankful that he made that choice. And I believe it was a wise choice. And he could have later on throughout his life turned back from that decision. But as we study his life, as we look at the stories we're going to look at today, Elisha never wavered from that decision he made to follow God and the work that God had appointed for him to do. And it wasn't necessarily always easy for Elisha after he made that decision. I'm sure there were times when he was following Elijah around and then after Elijah was translated that he had times where he didn't have much money. Maybe he had times where he was hungry. Maybe there were times when he felt that there weren't very many people that understood him. And he would think back to how he had it in his family. Everyone loved him. He was rich. Everything was taken care of. And how easy it would be to just go back to that kind of a life. But he never went back. And that's an example for us today. As we're preparing to get ready for the Lord to come, once we choose to serve God with all of our hearts, there's going to come times in our lives when things are going to be tougher, when things won't be easy, when we will fill like maybe it would just be easier if we went back to what we had before. But when God calls us to his work, he wants us to start what he called us to do all the way to the finish line. And so that's just something to think about as we study the life of Elisha. And I want us to go now to 2 Kings. We're going to get into some of the stories of the life of Elisha. And the first one I wanted to look at is when Elisha was still with Elijah. This was when Elijah was still working with Elisha before he was translated. And starting in chapter 2, 
verse 1. And we'll read the first few verses here. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. Now if you read on down through the rest of the chapter, it's apparent that everyone in the schools of the prophets knows that Elijah is going to be translated to heaven. Now what Elijah didn't know was that these people knew that. And that if you read Prophets and Kings, it's um, spelled out in that manner. Elijah doesn't realize that Elisha and all the sons of the prophets realize that he's going to be translated. But he, so he gives Elisha the opportunity to stay at one of the, the schools and he's going to go on somewhere else. But Elisha was committed to staying with Elijah all the way until the end. But what I wanted to focus on here in these first few passages, if you look all the way down through at least verse 6, it talks about how Elijah and Elisha were visiting schools of the prophets. The first one mentioned is here in Bethel. And then later on down in verse 5, it talks about a school of the prophets in Jericho. And so there's at least two schools here that Elijah and Elisha were visiting that they had oversight of. And so that gives us some insight into the role of education in God's people. Now, we hear a lot about the importance of ed- education through the writings of Ellen White. I'd never really thought about where the Bible talks about um, the importance of education um, and how God would have our education to be instituted, but it's interesting that Elijah and Elisha placed an important or had an important place in the work of God with training up young people who would understand God's word and be able to teach it to others. And these schools had originally been instituted by Samuel. Samuel was a prophet in, of course, in the, in the nation of Israel back before this time when Saul and David were kings. And he instituted these schools of the prophets. But by the time that Elijah and Elisha came onto the scene, these schools had really deteriorated. They had become a skeleton, if you will, of what they had become. And so one of the first things that Elijah and Elisha did was to resurrect the educational system according to how God would have it to be. And I find that to be very interesting because we know that there will be a type of Elijah just before the Lord comes. And I believe that God wants us to take seriously how he would have his people to be educated. And education is important if we think about who our future leaders are going to be. And Elijah and Elisha understood that. And I wanted to read a quote from the Christian educator from August 1, 1897. And this is um, 
written by Ellen White. It says, I know that much time and money are spent by students in acquiring a knowledge that is as chaff to them, for it does not enable them to help their fellow men to form characters that will fit them to unite with saints and angels in the higher school. In the place of crowding youthful minds was a, with a mass of things that are distasteful and that in many cases will never be of any use to them, a practical education should be given. Time and money are spent in gaining useless knowledge. The mind should be carefully and wisely taught to dwell upon Bible truth. The main object of education should be to gain a knowledge of how we can glorify God, whose we are by creation and by redemption. The result of education should be to enable us to understand the voice of God. And so education, as we think about it, the main object should be to gain a knowledge of how we can glorify God. And so as we think about how our young people are, are being educated today, what is the main purpose that we are being educated for these days? Is it to glorify God or is it to find a place in the world that we can take care of ourselves? And I would challenge all of you out there as you think about how you can help God's work in this time, think about ways that you can educate young people or older people, anyone, to gain a knowledge that will help them to glorify God because that's what true education is all about. And when Elijah and Elisha came onto the scene, one of the key roles that they played was helping the young people to be trained to understand the law of God, to understand the character of God, and how to teach that to others. And so I'm thankful for the work that Elijah and Elisha had when it came to educating people to understand the true God. Now, another interesting thing about Elisha is how he responded um, to other people around him. After these experiences of following Elijah around, we know that Elisha was able to see Elijah translated. And I just want to read briefly um, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9. And Elisha knows that Elijah is about to be translated. And so in verse 9 it says, And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon thee. Elisha had been with Elijah enough that the thing that Elisha desired most was the gift of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't so concerned about being blessed with worldly prosperity, with temporal gifts, with even being blessed with um, a large family, which is great if you're blessed with that. But the thing he was most concerned about being blessed with was a double portion of the spirit that God had given to Elijah. And, of course, we know the kind of life that Elijah lived. He was the one who stood on Mount Carmel, who killed the 450 priests of Baal. Um, He killed 
400 priests of Baal, sorry. And he fearlessly rebuked sin in a time when it was unpopular to rebuke sin. Elijah wasn't afraid to stand up for what was right, even though everyone else around them was worshiping Baal. And Elisha asked for a double portion of that spirit. Now, it's interesting that after Elijah was translated, in many ways, the role of Elisha filled a different place than the role of Elijah. Sure, there were times when Elisha pointed out sin, he rebuked um, things that were wrong within the kingdom of Israel, but by and large, his role as a prophet was much more peaceful than Elijah, which is interesting. He um, didn't kill the 400 prophets of Baal. There's the story of when he caused all the the Syrian army to become blind, and the king of Israel asked Elisha if it was okay to kill all of them, and Elisha said, no, feed them. And so that's quite a bit different than the role Elijah played, even though Elisha had a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. But there were some times in his life when he had a stronger... um, unfearful way of dealing with the people that didn't respect him. And, of course, this is a a story that kind of scared me when I was a little kid when I read this. um, In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23, um, starting in verse 23, speaking of Elisha, it says, He went up from thence unto Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him. And said unto him, Go up, thou baldhead, go up, thou baldhead. And he turned back and looked on them, and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she bears out of the wood, and tear forty and two children of them. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria. Why would God have a prophet of peace, which he basically was for most of his time? call down the name of the Lord to have 42 children or young people killed. That, I, I mean, even now still thinking about it, it's, um, it just doesn't seem like it fits the, the normal picture of how God deals with his people. But an important lesson needed to be taught here. If Elisha had let this situation go unrebuked, um, From that time on, there would have been more people who would have been inclined to mock Elisha, to question the translation of Elijah, and to question the role of God's prophet in the midst of his people. But I can assure you, after that incident, um, there was never anyone in the nation of Israel that wanted to cross the path of Elisha from that time on, because they remembered that experience. And of course, it was... It was a great tragedy, I'm sure, for um, the people who um, experienced that. But I, I wondered about that experience, and I wonder, you know, was that incident specific only to the people of that time, or has that happened all the way down through time among God's people and the nation of Israel, even down to our time today? Are people willing to accept the voice of a prophet when God sends a prophet among his people. And in the time of Elijah, Ahab rebelled against 
the word of Elijah in the time of Elisha. You had the kids mocking Elisha. In the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah, many of their messages were left unheeded. And of course, most prominently in the time of Christ, when he came as a prophet and as the Messiah to his people, he was largely rejected by his people. And is there a lesson for us today? The way Elisha was dealt with by the young children, the way Elijah had been treated by Ahab, the way Jesus was treated by the Jews. If you remember a story in the, when Jesus was going through the trial, when he was called in before Herod, what happened when he came in to the judgment hall? Herod was asking him all these questions. He was commanding him to, to do miracles, to, to save himself from the trial. But what did Jesus do? Jesus remained quiet. He had nothing to say to Herod. Now, why was that? Why would Jesus not give Herod an opportunity to respond to him as the Messiah? Because there were times when he spoke in his trial to the leaders of the Sanhedrin. In Desire of Ages, page 730, there's an interesting statement. Um, Christ might have spoken words to Herod that would have pierced the ears of the hardened king. He might have stricken him with fear and trembling by laying before him the full iniquity of his life and the horror of his approaching doom. But Christ's silence was the severest rebuke that he could have given. Herod had rejected the truth spoken to him by the greatest of the prophets, and no other message was he to receive, not a word from the majesty of heaven for him. And so I wonder about us today. If the Lord sends a message to us through his prophets, through his word, are we willing to receive it? Are we willing to accept the message of God's prophets all the way down through time, through the writings of the Bible and and down through our time today? And we know that God's end-time people, which will be characterized as having the Elijah message, Elijah coming down, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to their fathers, they are also characterized in, Reve- characterized in Revelation 12:17 as having the testimony of Jesus, which in Revelation 19:10 is the spirit of prophecy. Now, are we embarrassed by the prophetic gift that God has given to us? Or is that a gift that we will take and allow God to use in the proper role that he wants it to be used in us today? All down through time, we have seen many times how God's prophetic gift was spurned. It was rejected by the people of that time, and only later was it then accepted. And just... A passing thought that I would encourage you to think about. This is from letter 12, 1890. The very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Satan will work ingeniously in different ways and through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant in the true testimony. And so when I read the story about Elijah being mocked by the children, it reminded me 
at times of um, growing up as a child, going through our school system, and at times hearing people deriding different writings, different authors, um, different um, things in the Bible, and different things in the writings of Ellen White. And it just made me think again for myself, am I serious about following God's word completely? So that's just something to think about. Now, in 2 Kings chapter 5, we have a very interesting story about Naaman. And this is, of course, related to Elisha in the time of Elisha. Naaman was a captain in Syria. He was a captain in the army of Syria. And he developed leprosy. And we know the story that there was a little maid in his household that had been captured and brought back into Syria. And when Naaman had leprosy, the maid, this little maid, remembered that there was a prophet in Israel who had power that would be able to heal something as bad as leprosy. Now, she was raised well enough by her parents that even though she went into a heathen country, she was still able to maintain her fidelity to God and to encourage her heathen associates to seek after him. And I thought that, again, is a powerful witness to the role of the parental influence in the early years. And I'm thankful for how her parents raised her. And she encouraged Naaman to go seek out um, the prophet Elisha in Israel. So we know the story. Naaman got permission from the king of Syria. And it's kind of interesting. The king sends a letter to the king of Israel, not to Elisha. And so in verse 6 of Second Kings chapter 5, it says, And Naaman brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is coming to thee, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to thee, that you may recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. Here the king of Israel is totally baffled by this request from the king of Syria. And it's interesting to me that here he had a prophet in his midst, and his first reaction wasn't to send Naaman to Elisha, but to think that the king of Syria was trying to to be out to get him. But fortunately, Elisha heard about this story, and so he had Naaman come to him. And we know the story. Naaman was told to wash in the River Jordan seven times. And, of course, he was initially upset by this proposition. He felt that the rivers in Syria were better than the Jordan River. But this just teaches us, again, the simple lesson of obedience. Sometimes God asks us to do simple things that test our faith. And washing in the River Jordan to be cleansed of leprosy really was a very simple request. Um, perhaps it seems humil humiliating to Naaman, but when you think about the the risks and benefits, so to speak, of washing yourself in a quote-unquote, dirty river, and then being cleansed of 
leprosy or not humiliating yourself and retaining the leprosy, it was really quite a small task to do. Unfortunately, the servants of Naaman encouraged him to follow through with this request. And we know that Naaman was healed, and it was not because um, he did anything of his own strength, but by faith, he did what God asked him to do. And the same thing is true for us today. There are simple things that God asks us to do. And by faith, when we believe that God empowers us to do the things he asks us to do, he will cleanse us of whatever spiritual leprosy we may have in our lives, whether it be the sin of pride or selfishness or worldliness or love of pleasure or whatever it may be. When God asks us to follow him, he will give us the power by faith to be cleansed. Now, it's interesting that in Luke chapter 4, Jesus himself makes mention of Naaman. And it has perhaps some application for us today. Luke chapter 4, verses 24 through 27. And this was Jesus speaking in Nazareth. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country, but I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And then verse 27. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. You know, it's interesting that here in the nation of Israel, there were lepers all around, and none of them thought to seek out the prophet Elisha who could heal them. But yet a heathen man from Syria came all the way into Israel to seek healing from the prophet of God. And in so doing, he gave glory to God. He gave glory to the power of God. And he gave glory in such a way that Jesus himself, when he came here on this earth, gave mention to Naaman and the faith that he had that allowed him to be cleansed as a leper when all these other lepers in the nation of Israel uh, were not cleansed. And so I, I just thought about that for the time we live. And is it possible that we have blessings all around us that we're not tapping into um, because we just follow everyone else and we get stuck in the same rut of doing the same things? And when someone out in the world hears about the blessing that God's people have to offer, they oftentimes are much more blessed than we are when when they find out what it is that we have to offer, when they find out what the Bible really has to say. And I just found that to be a, an object lesson for myself. Is it possible that I am missing out on obvious blessings that God would have for us today because I'm not paying attention to the clues that God has given to us, whereas people out in the world may more readily notice 
the blessings that God has in his message in the last days. Something to think about. Now, just a couple more stories before we close. We know that Naaman was healed, and we know that he offered Elisha um, large gifts that would have made Elisha quite wealthy. But we know that, as we said earlier, when Elisha made that decision to follow God completely, he never turned back. He wasn't out to gain worldly riches, to gain worldly honor. And when Naaman offered him those gifts, and Naaman meant nothing bad by it, Elisha would not be deterred by that opportunity. But his servant ran after Naaman and told a lie to get those gifts. And I just find it interesting and almost hard to believe that here was a servant that spent time with Elisha in the same way that Elisha spent time with Elijah. Elisha's life was transformed in such a way that he received a double portion of the Holy Spirit. And yet Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, he retained his desire to gain wealth, um, to gain riches. And it just goes to show us that we always have a choice to follow God or to follow our own inclinations. We can be around the most powerful men and women of God every day of our lives. We can see the mighty works that they do on behalf of God. But if we don't make it our own experience, when that test comes, that test, that one specific weakness in our life, if we haven't surrendered to God completely, we could easily become like Gehazi and follow after the riches. That, and, in, and in order to gain them, we will even lie. And we'll lie. I mean, Gehazi lied to a prophet of God. I mean, how how can you do that? I mean, you know, a prophet can... We, we know the stories of Eli, Elisha seeing the, the city encamped by all the angels of God, and yet here Gehazi thought he could deceive God's prophet. And so it just shows you that even if you're that close to a man of God and know the power of God, if you don't make it your own, you can be deceived. And so I would just encourage all of you out here today, if you haven't made the experience of God your own, the surrender to God complete, that now is as good as a time as any. um, You don't want to wait till tomorrow. Today is the time to surrender completely to him. Don't rely on your husband, your wife, your neighbor, your pastor, on their experience. God wants us each to have our own experience with him. And one, one other story, Second Kings chapter 13. This is down towards the end of the life of Elisha. Starting in verse 14 of Second Kings chapter 13. Now Elisha was fallen sick of a sickness whereof he died, and Joash the king of Israel came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. 
And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot, and he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. And the man of God was wroth with him and said, Thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed him, whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. And that's just a lesson for us um, to maintain perseverance in our walk with God. A lot of times it's um, easy to get lackadaisical after a few successes. When things are going well, we start to relax in our experience. We don't maintain that sincerity, that fervor that we once had. And God wants us to maintain that same spirit of Elijah and Elisha, where we have a fervency for God all the way until the end. Not that times will always be easy. And one thing that I found interesting, though, about the death of Elisha was that he received a double portion of the Spirit of God compared to Elijah. Now, Elijah was translated, yet Elisha was not. Elijah is in heaven today because God took him to heaven at that time. Elisha is in the grave today. Now, why would that be? But Elisha was not at all depressed or discouraged or disappointed that God also didn't translate him. He accepted the role that God gave him to play on this earth, a very important one. And when his time came, he accepted his death and he rested awaiting for the resurrection. Now, I truly hope and pray, and I believe that we could be among the group of people that are translated to heaven without seeing death, just like Elijah. And I pray that that happens. But if it doesn't, what if the Lord doesn't come in our lifetime? Are we going to give up in discouragement, lose our perseverance, not follow God the way he would have us to do? Or will we be like Elisha? And from the moment that we are called by him, keep our hand to the plow of the work of God all the way till he may take us to the grave. And I pray that that doesn't happen. I pray that we are translated um, before too long. But I felt that the life of Elisha was an important example for us that no matter what happens to us in our life, we can be faithful to God no matter what. We can follow him. We can maintain a faithfulness a sincerity, a perseverance that others around us will recognize. And when Elisha died, all the nation of Israel recognized the great loss that they had sustained because he had been faithful through all of his life. And I pray that people, when they see us, will see in us a life of faithfulness, a life of integrity to God, and a life that when they see us, they will take note that we have been with Jesus. And so... I pray that we will think about those things throughout the rest of this day. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the Sabbath. Thank you for being with us. And I pray that 
you will enable us to have the integrity of Elisha, to have the faithfulness, the perseverance, and that when we receive clear messages from you, that we would readily accept them and be faithful to you no matter what. And so I pray that you would give us the Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to live lives of faithfulness, and may we be ready when you come soon. And I pray that we would have a a blessed rest of this Sabbath day. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.